Hi, DFW Den Gospel Radio family. This is Dr. Sheila Pope. Um, I'm the producer and host of Conversations with Dr. Pope, and I'm bringing my syndicated show to prime time at 2 p.m. Mondays through Sunday. I look forward to having many great conversations with you. Uh, be sure and watch the show on the P.O.P.E. channel on Roku. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook um, at our handle, Conversation with Dr. Pope. Or feel free to reach out and call me at 832-340-5521. I look forward to hearing possible great topics and things that um, are happening in your community that I can possibly share on the radio show. Uh, again, I look forward to having great conversations on the DFW Dan Gospel Radio Station. Okay, thank you guys for tuning in today. I am so excited because I got a chance to listen to Lovey Ajay Jones. I may have pronounced her middle name incorrectly. She's known by Lovey, okay? And she is a she's a writer. She's a best-selling author. She she looks at our social. She's an activist. She's a little bit of everything. Uh, but I have a lot of respect for her, and I listened to her live the other day, uh, her live call, Get Used to Doing Things That Feel Bigger Than You in 2020. And, oh, my God, at the time, right now, I think she's had 19,000 listeners to this, to her Instagram. And so I thought it would be great to share it in pieces with my audience because I think it's so important to hear how others um, who are successful, how they do what they do, okay? So let's get into it. I want to share parts of her actual audio um, into my show again, giving full credit. This came from uh, Lovey's Instagram account, and the Instagram I'm referring to is called Get Used to Doing Things That Feel Bigger Than You. Now, in the first segment of the show, Levy talks about the process of writing the book and how her writing the book, how it transformed her life, the, the changes that it made and the things that it made her think about when she was writing her book. And so I want to let you listen to the first uh, 15 minutes of it, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Um, this is Levy. Joining you to talk all things book today. I'm a writer, I'm a speaker, professional troublemaker, all the things. Unique hey, to be here today because we're talking book writing. Because I just finished writing my second book. If this is your first time joining any of my lives, I am a New York Times bestseller. I have been blogging and being on these interwebs for 17 years. I wrote a book called I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. This book came out in 2016, and it changed my life. It instantly hit the New York Times bestseller list, and it allowed me to live the life I was too afraid to live. It allowed me to retire my mother. This book changed my life. in the So that's who I am. And honestly, when my book was coming out, I realized that it had to prove a point because I signed my book deal for I'm Judging You in 2015. And when I did, 
there were no popular essay collections by black girls. My book proposal went out the same week that Issa Rae's book dropped. So I couldn't even use her book in my proposal. I couldn't use Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl to say, hey, publishers, my book was sold too because this did, because her soul came out right before my proposal came out. So shout out to the pioneer of Issa Rae. But when I went to write this book and when I started shopping it out, it was considered risky. I'm judging you was considered a risky book. So all the editors that were interested were like, okay, that's cool, but it's probably not going to sell well. One editor said yes, Henry Holt. So I signed my book deal with Macmillan Publishing in uh, March 2015. Y'all, my book advance was low. My book advance is nothing <laughs> compared to what people are getting now. So I knew the point of my book, this book that I wrote, was to blow people out the water and was to kill the game because I wanted to change publishing, not just for me, because I realized that if my book did well, it would make it easier for another black woman to write a book and be taken seriously for it. If I'm judging you did well, it was going to be doing well for more than me. So I was really determined. It was like a battery in my back. I was like, I know my advance is lower than what I feel like I deserve, but this is an opportunity. We take the things that we consider failure as opportunity, right? So I was like, this is an opportunity to blow folks out the water. So I called in all my favorites. I'm a Capricorn. I'm very much independent-minded. It's really hard for me to ask people for favors. This book, I was like, yo, drop the ego. Ask people for favors. Call in your favors because you need this book to be amazing. And I wrote this book over five months in 2015. It was, I started writing the book. Okay. So I wrote this book in five months, 83,000 words. May 2015 is when I started writing the book itself. And then I finished it October 2015. And I knew it was good because I wanted to write the book that I was proud of. But when it came to marketing it, I realized that I really had to like double down on this idea that I can't call them favors. So I was like, yo, call in all your favors. Call all your friends who might be somebody. Call somebody who got connections because how you gonna get this book on lists? How you gonna get this book in everybody's hands? How you gonna make sure people know that I'm judging is coming out? Because again, my advance was small and I didn't have much marketing support because my book was not supposed to be a big book. This book was not supposed to be a big book at all. It was, it was like, eh, we like it, it'll be cool. So I was like, y'all know what happens when people don't fully, fully buy into what we want to do. When we feel like we have a point to prove, we will go hard. And that's what I did. I went hard. I was like, yo, not only will I call on my favors, all the marketing and social media know-how that I know, I'm going to put it into effect. Right? Like, I'm going to make sure that this thing kills so that's why i was obsessed with how i marketed it i was obsessed with what this cover was like y'all if i tell one day one day this is not shade to my publishers henry holt because they've done some really good things with this book i'm gonna show you I should, one day i should show y'all the first covers of this book i was like cancel no ma'am this ain't gonna work for me i was like this is not gonna work for me this cover no so i was like can we have some, hey, 
um, do you think your book club want to read this book? Hey, um, do you think your company wants a speaker who can come talk about books and whatever? So when I'm judging you came out on September 13, 2016, I didn't do any um, national television press. I was not as big as I was, whatever big looks like. This is, I, I, I had a hundred days not who I was five years ago in terms of access to people. So when this book came out on September 13, 2016, man, listen, I had a piece in the New York Times. I was featured in Forbes, in Inc., in, like, my first reading of this book happened at Facebook headquarters. Um, I was everywhere, right? He made it seem like I was everywhere, but I really wasn't. I wasn't on the Today Show. I wasn't on GMA. I wasn't, you know doing late night television. It was on the power of the internets and the power of y'all, my community. Y'all were like, lovey, we got you. Because you heard me say, listen, I need y'all to help make this book a success because the success of this book goes beyond me. It means another black woman can walk into a publishing house, say this is the work that I want to do, and it's going to sell well because Lovey's did well. I told my audience, I said, listen, I need your help because if I become a New York Times bestseller, it makes it that much easier for somebody else because they'll say Lovey's book becomes the book that they will add to their proposal. I came to y'all. I was like, I'm not too proud to beg. Please support this book. It's good. You're going to like it. Buy it. And if you buy it and you like it, buy it for somebody else. And y'all were like, we got you. And you meant it. You meant it. So, yeah. Book came out. The New York Times list comes out eight days after every book. So, two books comes out on Tuesday. The week after, you will find out. The week after on a Wednesday, you find out whether you make the New York Times list. And that list depends on who ordered the book beforehand and who bought it the week of? On September 21st, 2016, I was getting ready for Ad Color Awards when I got a call from my publicist who was like, Lovey, I'm screaming. And I was like, wait, what? It was like 5.07 p.m. She was like, you're on the list. I said, what list? See, you talk about it on the show. One, I love the fact that she was very clear. You need a purpose when you write your books. Uh, you know, you need to know what what's the, what motivates you to do what you're doing. Her main motivation at first was, of course, to talk about, you know, be, you know, yeah, she's asking America, asking people to do better, to look at how we think and act and how we behave, which I love that because as a counselor, I do that. As an educator, I do that. As a mom, I'm doing that. And now as a businesswoman, I'm asking women, especially, to look at how we make our money, look at how we're not making money. Uh, as a publisher, I am not only an author, but I'm a publisher. And so as a publisher, I'm saying now to my, my authors, hey, what do you want to get out there to your people? What is your purpose for writing the book? And I love that Lovey was like, I am trying to make sure I kick down those doors, those barriers that are there for African-American female writers. Because when she started, there wasn't a trail for her. Now, 
I have a few favorite authors that I love to read. And I'm almost embarrassed, but many of them have not been females. Uh, Elin Harris is probably one of my famous, most famous uh, writers and my favorite of the famous writers that I, I read. Elin Harris, um, he passed away, but Elin was a homosexual, and he talked about being on the down low. Um, not him himself, but he wrote about characters who were on the down low. He wrote about professional athletes and successful black men and the women that they loved. He wrote, and I loved his books, and it was like a trilogy. So you had to read one, and, you know, you just kept going. And I, I loved it. And I met him in real life. He signed my books, and I was like, yes, I have lived. Elin Harris is, you know, I met him. I got my photo. He signed my books. That was phenomenal for me. And then I love Eric Jerome Dickey. Oh, my goodness. Now, Eric Jerome Dickey, he writes about a little bit of everything. Friends and Love is probably one of my, my favorite books. So I'm sitting here thinking when I'm listening to Lovey, and I'm like, what, what women am I listening to? What women have I bought books from? Uh, and then I realized, of course, Michelle Obama, that one. You know, I went down Oprah's list. I've had books that we've had in my book clubs that I've read. But I never bought them based on what Lovey was saying, you know, trying to help um, black female writers kick down doors. That wasn't my intent. So I was so glad to have her say and acknowledge that there are not very many black women. Now, we got Alice Walker out here. Now, I'm not saying we don't have uh, Nikki Giovanni. We, we have a lot. I teach English literature, for heaven's sake. So we have women who are writing but they're at a different level and and their books are not considered what she's talking about you know like having this platform that's more humor satire that kind of thing it's not academic in nature but anyway i just i was she really made me think about why are we writing as authors as writers why are we writing and then she talked about marketing in that clip and then marketing one of the things I realized is that I have a gift for doing that part right there. How do you sell? How do you push? How do you promote your books? She was very clear about she didn't have, she had a, a great publisher, but there were some, you know, small budgets for marketing because when people have low expectations of your work, they don't help push and promote your work. We have to do a lot more work if you're an independent publisher, an independent author. You have to really get out there. And I love the fact that she said she had to realize, she had to call in some favors. What does that mean? You know, I was talking to another author on my Facebook page, Sharon Page. I just bought her book this weekend. And she said, Dr. Pope, I didn't get very much support. And I remember she sent me the link, and she sent it to me, and I posted it, and I shared it on my feed. But let me tell you something. Just because someone shares your work does not mean that the marketing is working. It means they shared it. I think people have to talk about your books. People have to engage in your books and book club and all those other things. I teach books in my classes, uh, literature, um, again, all of them are normally in an anthology, so my students have them all in one section. Um, now, some of the books I have, I've, I've taught Tim O'Brien, um, the things, the ones that I really, really love. Again, I have had the hardback, the, the, the hardback I buy myself, not just looking at the books being in an anthology. But what I'm saying is, there's a lot of marketing 
behind certain authors. And I mean, I, I would be, re if I didn't talk about Stephanie Myers, I mean, who hadn't read the Twilight series? Who hadn't watched the movies? But even with that, one of the producers of her first show, the first movie, Twilight, she said, I wasn't asked back to direct the other, uh, not producer, but directors. And again, that goes back to realizing that a lot of people are not pushing for writers, female writers. And then if, you're, if your book is not one they think is like not going to do well, then you're not getting a lot of marketing. You're not getting the shows, the television shows. You're not getting on the radio station. You're not doing all those things. And so I love the fact that right now God has me sitting. I have my own radio station. I have my own publishing company. I can talk about my book on my social media. I can promote my authors on my social media. I can say, hey, let me get out there and talk to some television people about you. I can do my part. And then I have my own television show. So with a black-owned media company, I have the opportunity to push black writers. And not just black writers. I want to be real clear. This is August is Black Business Month. But I want to push any author that has good content, good materials, things that I relate to, things that engage me, things that make me say, mm, I can't put this thing down. That's what I want to read. I love reading, and I love teaching reading. I love sharing about a book. I, I, I love this part of my life. However, when you hear someone like Lovey talk about, hey, I didn't have a marketing, a big push in marketing. I wasn't on any shows. She said she had about 30,000 followers on one thing, and I think maybe a little less. Now, to her, that's not a big following on social media. To me... That's huge. <laughs> I, you know, I've had 5,000 on my Facebook account. Um, now on my creators page, I have about 4,900 something. That's small. That's, that's nowhere near where she is. But I believe you can market a book and you can promote things when you are focused and determined and you know your purpose. She also said she had to ask for support. And I think this is critical today. That when even when Sharon said to me on Facebook, uh, we were doing the DM, she said, I was surprised that no one supported my work. And I wanted to say back, I'm not surprised. I think people love to tell you, oh, I'm going to buy your book. Oh, as soon as you get it out there, I'm getting it. I've had that with one, another one of my authors. Um, we published her work. People told her her friends and said, oh, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to buy that. Well, I can tell you only two people bought the book thus far. As the publisher, I can see all those things. And she said, well, so-and-so told me they were going to buy it. Yeah, well, they told you that. But did they follow through is a whole nother matter. So it is important that we realize that you have to, if you want your book sales to grow, you got to do the work. Don't trust just your publisher. Don't just rely on the people who verbally tell you they're going to buy it. No, cash is king. When they buy it, then you know. Conversation does not add up to a purchase, and even with a purchase, um, as she was saying in uh, the her her Instagram, when you love a book, not only do you buy it for yourself, buy it for a friend. That's that's another thing you can do is give it as a gift. Those are things you can do to support your authors. Okay, 
So I'm just saying, I love that part of the segment because I think as a publisher, my job is to heavily promote, is to push out, to give the links, to um, do all I can to put the book in the best places for distribution. And also to tell people that, hey, you have to, you have to pay because what Lovey was talking about also in another clip, I think she mentioned in this one, about cash advancements. People are going to give you an advance based on what they think your book will sell. So when I wrote my first textbook um, called Writing Essentials, I wrote that my publisher was Great River Technology. Now they're called Great River Learning. Now, when they knew I had students about, I had at the time, 75 students a class. Yeah, I taught the uh, Writing 101 classes. So when I created the book, to go with my class. They knew when they asked me to write the book, the projection for how many students would buy the book. Now, I was so excited, but when they got down to advance, there was no talk to me about a cash advance. I didn't receive a cash advance. I didn't know to ask for a cash advance. I was so happy to be published. We're talking about I'm creating a book for a class I teach. And my book will be in the hands of my students. So it was very tailored to what I was doing. And I love it because my first year, or the first time I got the book, it sold out. And I, at the bookstore, and they called me and said, hey, Miss um, Pope, you need to get some more books. We're out of the, and when you have an ebook, the ebook has like a plastic cellophane with a paper. It has the cover and the, um, the uh, ISBN. That's what they, your international your book code. It has that in there, and the students would click, would pay the money, and then the book would download to their uh, devices. And so I was teaching class, and I would ask, do you have your book? And the students were like, well, no, I don't have a book. Well, but then they would say, well, what are you ta- where are you in the, in the lesson? It's in your book. So I had to learn how to tell my students, you need the book in order to go through the class. And I had to get used to that other uh, people who taught math and English, they had their own books. Uh, I wondered, what are they doing? How are they promoting the book? What are they doing? I was really blessed because my book was to be utilized in my class for different activities. I had a lot of things in there. But as Levy was saying, how do you create something that you get people to love? She knew her book was good. But how do I get the next person to see that this book is good? Having a textbook is totally different than having a book that I'm writing currently with my co-author, Tony. That, that, that's different because now I'm getting out of my comfort zone and I'm talking about something that's business, but it's not a textbook where my students can use. I, I, I think publishing textbooks is really a lot easier process. More details, but a lot easier in the sense that it's very technical. You know what you're doing. You know what you need. It's how to teach a student how to do certain things. When you're writing a book for content, for enjoyment, for thrill, uh, engagement, that's totally different. To me, a different um, mindset. So when she talked about marketing, support, when I did my textbook, I didn't have a lot of my coworkers saying, yay, you published a book. I, I did it. I met with my publisher. I met with the, um, her name is Michelle. She was working with me. We'd have lunch and she asked me, where are you in the process? Uh, do you have, do you have your chapters? 
And it was such a, I, I had deadlines and I did not set up realistic deadlines. You're going to hear in this next piece what Lovey talked about. How do you write your book? How do you go from start to finish? She says it very clearly, chapter by chapter. It, you know, you don't realize when you say you want to write a book, it is really dependent upon you, your motivation, you, your marketing, you, your uh, ability to talk to people and say, hey, if you're in a book club, I have a book. Can we put it for the book club? They can either say yes or no. And you can maybe if they say no, you may be a little upset. But sometimes your friends will say they, they may not feel comfortable talking about your work when you're there. I mean, it's it's something to have your friends sit in judgment or to say, this is horrible. Who wants to tell their friend that their book is horrible? Many of your family will buy it because it's your family. And they, they just love you and want to say, okay, I supported you. But it comes a time when you say, because my textbook was $45. So a $45 book, no, kids are not running around just investing in that book. They had to invest because it was part of their class. They didn't rush out and say, ooh, Dr. Pope, I want to get your new book. <laughs> no, that wasn't the case. So I love that Lovey talks about that, that part that people don't want to say. You have to call in favors. You have to actively sell your book. You have to tell people. You have to answer questions. You can't be defensive. You can't be, when, when you're talking, you have to say, okay, what is the purpose? To promote the book. Do I care so much as you're judging me that I'm out here telling, asking you to support me? You have to put that pride, that hubris to the side and say, hey, I want to get this book sold. So for those of you who are out here who are publishing and writing your hearts and doing what you say you want to do, don't forget that piece about, as she said, marketing, not having any shame, and making very clear, be very clear with yourself. Your purpose is to break down barriers, to open doors for others that may come behind you in your genre. And what I did was many of my coworkers at uh, Texas Southern, when I published the book, they were asking, how did you do that? It gave them an opportunity to realize that you too can publish. Now, a lot, lot of them did not do it. But the point is, they saw someone who had. And part of, if you're on the tenure track in academics, you do have to be published. So while many people don't understand why academics professors and um, they're always writing books and chapters and things or articles, that is part of their profession. Uh, I too have a doctorate and I teach literature, but in English, but I haven't been, I'm not on a tenure track. So I write because I want to write. Um, I do have to push myself to do more academic write, writing, writing in journals and that type of thing. I have not been really forcing myself to do that. But if you are listening and you are a professor still, this, this, I think love is Instagram, um, will help you too. So again, this is only segments of it. Don't forget, you can listen to the thing in its entirety. Um, it's called Get Used to Doing Things That I that, that Feel Bigger Than You. Okay, let me go to another section of it. Okay, so 
after I wanted to add something, I had to go back and do a little looking in my room to figure out who, who you know, who's on my bookshelves. And um, I figured that out very quickly. One of the authors I did forget to mention on here was female authors that I read. Terry McMillan. Oh, my God. How could I forget her name when I have mostly all of her books? I can tell you how you forget her name because she is like one of the only at that level. So it's like Terry is like a member of your house. You know, it's like Aunt Terry. If you're a reader, if you're an avid reader, you know, Terry McMillan has had movies. Uh, matter of fact, even her own personal life was a little drama at one time. You know, when she married her, uh, the story, when she wrote the story, um, how, how Stella got a groove back, although she said it wasn't a biography, it had part of her life mixed in, and of course, you know, all that drama that happened with her husband, who later on said he was not only young and sexy and all that good stuff, but he also figured out he was gay. So, anyway, I I could not, you know, I was remiss not to put my Terry McMillan up there, and I, because I'm filming this show, while I edit and make the radio show. I'm showing some of my Elin Harris because I I have a one of them was Anyway the Wind Blows. Again, I have all of his paperback and his uh Just as I Am was the first one I read. Oh my God. And my again, Eric Jerome Dickey, I have showing some of his hardbacks between lovers, my favorite, um Thieves Paradise and Sister Sister. Oh my God. Humorous, funny, so much like um, he, he really writes for female, um, female audience. Anyway, so I decided I'd share some of my books. Now, I want to get back to how in the next section that Lovey talks about what happens after you get the bestseller. What, what happens? So for, if you're writing and you're writing your book and you're saying, I'm struggling, I'm having bouts of writer's block, I'm not feeling this, I'm trying to write for academics, you know, for my, my tenure, and you're just feeling the pressure like nothing's going right. I want you to go back and focus on this piece that she talks about. What happens when you achieve the goal of being on the bestsellers list? Now, I'm going to be honest. As an author, that has never been one of my goals. I think the biggest goal I've ever had was to be published. And then the other was to be paid. Because I also help. I do uh, editing for people who are doing the dissertations. And in that process, you know, it's a, it's very time consuming. It's a lot of work. And there's a lot of money to be made out in that world. And that's one of the other areas that I am uh, known for is that I do a lot of writing and editing of dissertations. And I am very happy to say I've had some very successful clients. Now, the one good thing about that is that yes, you know you can write, but it's a it's it's a different type of writing slash editing that you're doing. It is uh, again for a very formula structured writing approach. Every every school has their own requirements. Um, dissertations have to be written in certain formats, APA normally. So it's it's not your normal like Terry McMillan, Eric Jerome Dickey type of writing. I, I've never had the a goal to say, oh, I want to write like Eric Jerome Dickey. But I have often wondered, what does it feel like to be on the bestsellers list? And so I love that Lovey shares that. She tells you the scoop, that she gives you the tea on what it's like to be in that arena. Because it's such a small 
group of people who get in there that she's letting us know a little inside to it. Okay? So let me play that part of the clip for you. I lost my mind for like three minutes. Like I'm talking screaming, screaming. I was like, she was like, you, you're on the New York Times list. You're number five. I wasn't number 16. I wasn't number, number 20 squeaked in. I was number five. I instant life changer. I get off the phone with my publicist. And I, my call was my speaking agent. And I said, I'm number five on the New York Times list. And he said, well, we just doubled your fees. 507, my fees were one number. When I called my agent at 515 or 530, whenever that time is, my fees were double that. When a black author or a black creative does something like this, makes it into a clubhouse that nobody can take them out of, it reverberates, it changes everything. Because the fact that this one thing instantly doubled my fees, I was like, wow. So two weeks later, I called my mom and told her she never has to work again. So that's what book writing has done to me done for me. It opened doors that I didn't even think were open. I started being able to be in rooms that I didn't even know existed. I was getting all types of invitations that I didn't, I was like, this is a thing? The power Okay, now after listening to that, I mean, wow, come on. Can you believe this? This is She's saying she made enough money to tell her mother she didn't have to work. She got invitations that she wasn't privy to before she hit that bestsellers list. And I think for those of you who are aspiring to do that, it's possible. I think sometimes we just need to hear that a person like us, anyone, normal, everyday people, can write bestsellers. Now, again, I... I I don't. I'm not saying don't hold. We we shouldn't hold ourselves like to the Terry McMillan standard or to the Eric Jerome Dickey standard. Or you you have to start where you start. But having someone like Lovey to tell you, here's how I did it. It was a lot of work on her part. She had a publisher. A lot of you are self-publishing, and that's a whole nother talk. But it is important that you we, we realize that once you achieve the goal, then a lot comes with that. And with that comes these invitations. With that comes transformation. And I think that's a word today I'm going to reiterate. Transformation. She went from someone who was saying, hey, what's a writer? What is a writer? She said it took her in the previous clip. Took her nine years of writing to finally say, I am a writer. Right. Who was afraid of calling herself a writer for nine years. I, was, I started blogging in 2003 as a hobby. You know, I was doing it after I got the D in chemistry. And I 
was afraid to call myself a writer for years because I thought a writer looked like Toni Morrison. You know, the women who were writing amazing novels. I thought writers were Terry McMillan. I thought writers were, you know, Maya Angelou. That's a writer. So I didn't call myself a writer because I was afraid that I didn't earn that title. And I didn't call myself a writer until 2012 when I found myself in spaces that people who called themselves writers and were backed by million dollar entities were also in. I was like, my words is awesomely lovely. Got me in the same place as a journalist from CNN, from Entertainment Weekly, from, from New York Times, and here I am in the same rooms as them. I am a writer. So in case you're watching this and you're wondering whether you are a writer, do you write? If you write, you are a writer. If you are somebody who wakes up thinking about words, you are a writer. If you are somebody who people tell has amazing ways of putting ideas, you're a writer. If you are somebody who one day wants to write, you are a writer. So I'm, I'm wearing this hat that says writer on it. Because I remember a time when I was afraid to be calling myself a writer. I remember a time when I was afraid of what came with the title writer. It meant I could fail now with my words. It meant that I actually had to give my gift the credit it deserved. It meant I actually had to honor the gift that God gave me. It meant that I could not deny the gift and all the things that came with it. So I went I'm wearing this hat today as a testimony of how far having the audacity to own something that feels big and scary is can take you. It is powerful. And sometimes the things that we are afraid of feel really big. And our fear of them is bigger than what the actual thing is. It wasn't until I said I'm a writer that things that I was afraid of got moved out the way. All the things about how am I going to make money? Like, what does it mean to be a writer? The moment I said, you know what, God, you're right. I'm a writer. God was like, I've been waiting for you to say this. I have been waiting for you this whole time. Thank you for being here. I got you. That's literally what happened in my life. When people are like, when did you, when did your career pop? I had multiple moments in my career where I can see hockey stick grow, where it was like, Stagnant, stagnant. Okay, this thing happened. Stagnant, stagnant some more. This thing happened. My career was like this, right? It was going. It was doing well. I was consistent. But when I said I am a writer, the moment I said that, God was like, bet. Here's a couple of columns in a, ma in a magazine. Here, brands are going to come to you and ask you to collaborate because they know your audience is huge. Here, this book agent is going to recognize your talent and tell you that there's a book in you. And I'm going to drop the idea in your head. That's when I was like, oh, so you were just waiting on me to stop being afraid. Got you. All right. Lesson learned. And so here I am today. I'm doing a lot of things. I am where I am today is bigger than where I ever thought was possible because I didn't have the audacity. I ever start calling myself a writer until I published my first book, which was again writing essential strategies um, to make. Uh, let's see here, freshman English and writing placement exams to to master, and that's 
that I wrote a book on how to master taking writing exams because that's what I do. I teach others how to pass the AP, how to get that three, how to pass now working on MCAT, how to do the writing part. My brain is more like the textbook thing, but I'm realizing that through the literature and when I work with, especially college students, oh, to share the written word and to be amongst the people I say, oh, I now am a writer. I think that is so transformational when you can say to your family, I'm a writer. When you can say to your friends, they say, what do you do? I'm a writer. Well, what have you written? Nothing. She said, as long as you're thinking about words and you're thinking about how they ought to be organized and put into the world, you're a writer. Now, you do know that we do have to put something out there in order to take it from your brain out into the world. And it takes a lot of effort, time, and courage to take your thoughts. It takes a lot of being vulnerable to say, hey, I'm writing, and then to put it out there and then have someone judge it. Now, what I've done, and I recommend you guys do, if you are a writer, you're a blogger, you need to get in some of these groups out there on Facebook. I'm in a group called Courage to Earn. Um, I am in uh, Brown Bag Love. I think it's called Brown Bag Love. On Facebook, I'm in some other uh, groups now with blogging. I'm I'm putting my work out there. I have to. You have to list your website. You have to put your blog out there so those who are in the same area can see what you're doing. My blog is Dr. Pope's blog. Now it has changed. It was at one time Pope's Writing World, and then I realized that as I evolved, my blog has evolved. As you evolve and transform from going to someone who says, well, maybe I'm a writer to I am a writer. She says that is so critical into the process, owning that you are a writer. And then once you get there, realizing that you will be once you achieve your goal. If your goal is just to get published, then that's success. If your goal is to have your book on the number um, on the bestsellers list, she said number five was good enough. She didn't want to be number one. She didn't care if she was 20, but she did say she didn't want to, you know, squeeze in by the you know, skin of her teeth. She was at a good solid spot at number five, but she had put in 17 years of blogging before that ever occurred. We can't forget the work part. I think that's where we go wrong sometimes. We believe these writers are overnight successes and it's not always the case. We, we have to, and we have to acknowledge that Many female writers back in the day, they were writing under male pseudonym names. So, and I think the more risque your topics are, the more, you know, Anne Rice is known for her vampire stuff. But, you know, if you think about it, she has a lot of, like, sex in the in the books. I think a lot of times we, we have to, again, be open that women think sexual thoughts. Women think uh, uh, about murder. Women think about all kinds of things and putting it out there for the world to judge us can be uncomfortable. But I highly recommend if you're an author, you claim that you're a writer and put your work out there. Put it out there where others can see it in Facebook groups, join blog groups, join um, author things, you know, attend conferences. Put yourself out there to start hanging out with other authors. 
letting people know, hey, all right. And no one has the, you don't have to be celebrated in Forbes or whatever. But when you do, when you do, she talks about this in the next segment. We need to enjoy this, the moment, enjoy the success of it. I have a big problem in this area. I tend to do things. I have a goal. I accomplish the goal. I celebrate maybe with my children. We'll go out and eat, and then I move to my next goal. I don't often bask in it. I don't get a chance to revel and say, you know what? You published a book. I published a book uh, June the 4th. I was helping. uh, I published my author, uh, Dr. Moore. I published her book on June the 4th. And I was excited about it. I did my little dance. She wrote the book. I published the book. And... Then on June the 6th, something tragic happened in my life. And I had to stop and sit down and say, oh, my goodness. Mm, Okay. And I couldn't, I didn't relish, I couldn't go back and think, wow, you had something great happen until a year later. A year later, I looked at the timetable and I said, oh, my God, on the 4th, you had published a book. On the 6th, this happened. And I think sometimes, as, as Lovey says, we're always waiting for the shoe to drop. We're waiting on something to say, this just can't, you can't celebrate. Something's going to go wrong. I I don't think something's going to go wrong, but I don't think I say, yeah, you've done that. And I don't own it enough because I'm like, hey, goal off, let's go to another goal. And I'm working on that. And I, I don't know if I'm talking to other people in my, who are listeners today, who are goal checkers. We set a goal, check, we do the goal. Next, set a goal, check, we do the goal. Some people know how to say, I deserve this. When she said she was sitting in Oprah's house, she said she asked, how did I get here? Who do I owe? I think we forget you owe no one when you put the work in, when you put the time in. This show is taking a lot of time for me to edit, produce, to get it out here. But when I finish it, I'm going to celebrate that I've done this show. Because it's meaningful. It's meaningful to me. I hope it's me. I hope it's meaningful to you. Because I'm sharing information that I found great value in. And I hope that it helps encourage you to do what you're doing, which is right. And then I'm gonna get that hat she talked about. I'm not paid to market the hat company. So when you watch her actual live um, live Instagram you will be able to get the information if you want to buy you a writer's hat. All right. Next, she talks about imposter syndrome and what does that look like? What does that look like to someone who has a bestseller and yet you are still questioning how? What's next? And having a fear of success. Because a lot of us, I think, the reason we're not writing is because Oh, my God. After someone reads it, then they'll have to tell you, I loved your book or I didn't like your book. And a lot of times people don't want that. That's why they write with pseudonyms. That's, they don't want people to know I put that out into the universe. They want to keep it quiet. I remember, I don't know if you guys, I'm kind of dating myself, um, Lethal Weapon. It was a part in the, one of the series, the trilogy of the movie, Danny Glover's character, his wife would write some kind of risque novels, and she was making a lot of money. And so the, the department was starting to say, was he on the tape? Because they were like, hey, you've been buying a lot of stuff, a boat and a car, 
And he was like, well, how are you getting that? What are you doing? He said, my wife. She writes. And then he, they gave the pseudonym for his wife. And he was like, I didn't know that was your wife. And I thought that was really good because, again, it goes back into there are women who write and they hide their talents. They hide behind, uh, I'm a Christian, so I can't let people know. I write books that, well, there are men and women who have sex. You can be a Christian and being a Christian and uh, the bed is not defiled because you have sex in your marriage. You know, you can you can write those type of books. Why can't we talk about the things that are in our head? Why can't we put those things out there for the world to hear and see? You know, I think that's a big part of Okay, let's take a little quick break, and then we'll return with our new segment on President Pope's uh, signs an executive order for the $400 unemployment insurance. Hi, DFW Den Gospel Radio family. This is Dr. Sheila Pope. Um, I'm the producer and host of Conversations with Dr. Pope, and I'm bringing my syndicated show to primetime at 2 p.m. Mondays through Sunday. I look forward to having many great conversations with you. Uh, Be sure and watch the show on the P.O.P.E. channel on Roku. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook um, at our handle Conversation with Dr. Pope. Or feel free to reach out and call me at 832-340-5521. I look forward to hearing possible great topics and things that um, are happening in your community that I can possibly share on the radio show. Uh, Again, I look forward to having great conversations on the DFW Dan Gospel Radio Station. Okay, I'm back. I wanted to talk about President Trump's signs uh, an executive order for $400 unemployment insurance, payroll, tax holiday, student loan relief, and eviction moratorium. Now, uh, this article I'm reading is in Forbes. It was by Jim Wang. It was published on August the 8th, 2020. When I read this article, I was like, oh, okay, okay. People gonna, who lost their uh, unemployment will be able to get their $400 employment. And that now I have uh, someone on my payroll. I'm definitely trying to figure out, you know, about the taxes and all these things. Um, I decided that as smart as I am, sometimes you have to pay others to do what you can't do. So I I have someone going to handle that for me. But I still need to know as a boss, as an employer, I need to know what I'm supposed to withhold from my employees. And so this, when I saw payroll tax holiday, I was like, well, okay, let me read this. And, of course, if anybody has, like me, five degrees, you have some student loan debts, okay? Uh, so if there's any student loan relief anywhere in any any uh, bio or head of, uh, of article, I'm zooming in. And then, of course, eviction moratorium. You know, one of the things that I am I do not like is that Due to an act of God or nature, things out of people's control, people laying them off uh, due to COVID, business closing due to COVID, I do not feel that eviction is the right thing to do during this time. I know, I know people had problems before COVID-19. I realize that. And they may have been struggling to pay their rent. I understand that because as a business owner, I have had times where I had to wonder, okay? And so with that, 
I have a different feeling. I have more empathy maybe towards others who are going through the eviction process to be placed, to be put in a situation to be homeless because you lost your job because they closed because of COVID. It's a it's like a pile on effect. So when I read this article, I thought, wow, we're going to have some relief. So we're talking about writing today. And so I'm looking at, and this is also what I do on a daily basis in my English classes, when I teach the literature classes, when I teach argument, argumentative writing, I look at rhetoric. I look at the art of the way a person uses words to persuade their audience. And I'm sorry, but that heading there, the article's name, yeah, it caught my attention. It had every bite that I would say, woo, let me go and look it up. So, and I see President Trump's face. It is, ah, you know, his mouth is wide open. And you're thinking, okay, the president has used his power to help the people, right? Well, I, you go into the article and it says, after two weeks of negotiation, the next stimulus bill appears to have stalled in Congress. For all those of, of us who are waiting on a check for $1,200, $500 per dependent, we, you know, most people, unless you made over $175,000, or I think that's the cutoff, somewhere around there, then you're not waiting. I'm not one of those people. Nope. I'm one of those who are, you know, happily waiting on the check. Now, I'm not saying you uh, don't pay your bills based on that. No, no, no. That is something that may or may not happen. But the point is, they know in this article, and they know that it's common knowledge, people are waiting on the stimulus check. And so suddenly we hear... For almost two weeks, the Treasury Secretary, Stephen, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, uh, Nuchin and the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, have been negotiating a deal with Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, well, Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And they go on to talk about, you know, they hope they reach a deal, but that didn't happen. And, and, and so they go on down and say, and with that in mind, President Trump has decided to use executive orders to implement certain parts of the next stimulus package. He announced those orders at a new con news conference today detailing what each order would include and then sign them. Now, he goes in, this article breaks down each one. It looks at the payroll tax holiday. And it says that in there, the payroll tax refers to FICA, which stands for Federal Insurance Contributions Act, and it has two parts, Social Security and Medicare. Payroll uh, tax is deducted from your paycheck to cover those two social programs. And then it breaks down to tell you how much we pay, which if you didn't know how much your income, how much of your money went to FICA, was withheld due to FICA, it tells you in this article, 6.2% of your earnings up to what is known as the Social Security wage base. The Social Security wage base is $137,700 for 2020. If you earned $100,000 in 2020, you pay $6,200 into Social Security. That's how that goes. For Medicare, you pay 1.45% of your earnings, but there is no limit. If you earn $100,000 in 2020, you can pay $1,450 into Medicare. And you say, Dr. Pope, why are you reading that? Why is that important? It's very important because when someone tells you, that employer that you don't have to pay that, you don't have to withhold that now, then that's good. But that means that someone is looking at the Social Security office is looking for me to withhold that from your earnings. So I still owe that. 
Okay, did you catch that? Even if you're leaving it in the hands of the employee, you still owe it to Social Security and Medicare. Medicare. Well, if he's given a holiday, that means you don't have to pay it. That's how it reads. Okay, that's how the article reads. And so they would talk about that and we get down to say the president signed an executive memorandum titled Memorandum of Deferring Payroll Tax Obligation in Light of an Ongoing COVID-19 Disaster. And that would give a payroll tax holiday to employees earning less than $104,000 per year from September the 1st through December 31st. Now, that's right around the corner. So for a lot of small business owners who are struggling to stay afloat, this is like a great news. Most uh, people, not everybody makes 104000 so that puts you in a six-figure category. That's a little bit bigger. But most people, you know, make below that. And I say that most people, those who make minimum wage, they're not making that much money. Those like me who work for themselves, if you don't, you don't have a contract, you don't have money, you don't get a sale, you don't generate revenue. It's just that simple. So having this extra, the PPP loans and the SBA loans, those were there to help small business owners. But here's the catch. This article makes it appear that President Trump has signed something into into um, this executive order and that it's going to help us in very, very near future. But he said he would later state that if he was reelected, he'd terminate those taxes. In the past, President Trump has promised not to cut Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. But this statement seemed to indicate that his stance has changed on these social safety net programs. So, you know, in other words, the president may not have the power to do what he's saying he's going to do. But you do catch if he is reelected. Now, I think it's great that the president is saying, I'm going to do something to help the people. And during election time, everybody is saying they're going to do something. I don't care what party they're from. Democrats, independents, Republicans, this is the time where you, when you're up for, for election, you tell the people what you think they want to hear. And right now, people want to hear they're going to get that stimulus check. Small business owners want to hear they're going to get a tax break. The well-to-do want a tax break. And so they're looking for this. The eviction moratorium. This one was created by the CARES Act, also expires at the end of July. It protected renters who were in buildings that had no mortgage secured by federal government. Now, I'm not sure about that part, about the mortgages that are secured by the federal government. I'm assuming some people, like they own housing and they may have other funds that are, are that they have a different way that they pay their rent, they get assistance, so they don't have to worry. But those of us like me who are paying to live in an apartment, well, yeah, you, you, if I don't pay, I can't stay. It's just that simple. <laughs> simple like for most people. And the going rate now, especially in Pearland, to get a, a basic apartment with two bedrooms is a running between 1213 and up. So a stimulus check? That one check may cover your rent for one month. That won't cover the lights, the phone, the anything else that you have. So, yes, 
grateful for the stimulus check, but that's not going to solve long-term problems. And let's be honest, this COVID-19 seems like it's going to be here a while. And so on this eviction moratorium, though, the article makes it, makes it very clear that, you know, during the negotiations, Republicans offered to include an eviction moratorium that would last through December 15th. The president, again, he signed an executive order titled Fighting the Spread of COVID by Providing Assistance to Renters and Homeowners, Providing Eviction Protection through Departments of Housing and Urban Development, Health and Human Services. Well, this is for to help land, renters, homeowners, lenders, and landlords. But it didn't say how. See, you got to read things for the details. And one of the jobs of a writer is to tell you what you need to, to bring you in, explain to you what's happening in a way that, you know, everyone can read. Many of you may not even know it, but your newspapers are written on a sixth grade level. They're written for people who have a sixth grade education. Because, they, you know, people are very aware that we have a lot of functional, illiterate people. So your newspapers cannot be, you know, written way above and using all these abstract metaphors and things. People want the facts. Just give us the facts. And I love this, that he, the author, was very clear. Yeah, the president is saying he's going to do all this, but he didn't tell you how he's going to do it. And then he says this enhanced unemployment. Well, this one is the one that most people I know are having the biggest debate over. The $600 per week federal unemployment benefit created by the CARES Act expired last month, and negotiators have been, have been working towards extending a lesser amount. Well, that $400 that, he, that was mentioned in the, uh, the title of the article, it said during those negotiations, we learned that Republicans proposed $400 per week for federal unemployment insurance benefits through December 15th. This was higher than the $200 per week uh, benefit, which include the HEALS Act, but less than $600 per week that the Democrats wished. And it made it seem like he put in, like, hey, I'm going to sign this order, and we're going to get you guys $400. Well, that was true. And then I found out from other people because one thing about writers and reading, you have to read one article and go do some more research. And what I found out is that that is true. He signed the order, but the state will have, each state has to do a different thing. Like, in other words, the federal government put in 300 The state has to put in 100 Right now, a lot of states are tapped. So you they may not put in an extra 100 to make it $400 like you know, many people were reading and like the president put out there, it was like, oh, well, this is going to happen now. And then we find out there is a process. Just because he signs the order doesn't mean things happen next week. It takes time to get all this stuff worked out. But in the meanwhile, the $600 unemployment insurance benefit has expired. So people now don't have that extra $600. Now, here's the argument. I've heard so many people um, talk about, and I'm a good friend of mine, well, one of my Facebook friends, Sean, he wrote a post this weekend, and it, it upset a lot of people. He talked about if you're getting $600 over and above what you would have normally got, that's why people are not returning to work. And then he said people should take that money and invest it and use it to invest in a business, uh, get themselves out of debt, 
do other things to 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 help themselves and not just blow it on shopping and all these other extra things. And I understood his point, but I also said he and he did. He made good points. Not everybody agreed with that, but here's the thing I got from that. And I think a lot of people are failing to realize this. There's this myth that if you're getting extra $600 above what you were supposed to get, you're living high on the hog. Some people may not have received but three or $500 in unemployment. So $600 is giving them $1,100. That will cover one month's rent, maybe. Then you had to look at uh, their child care. If you did not, if you're working and all this time since March, your kids are normally in school and now suddenly they're at home. You're paying child care to continue to work. That's another bill you didn't anticipate. And $600 a week is a drop in the bucket. I had three kids at one time in, in child care. Oh, I paid $600 and some. Okay, that is no money. The older they get, the less it costs. But the more kids you have, the more you pay. Um, so I was like, mm, people are not looking at extra incurred costs. Now you're at home more, so your your electricity bill's higher. I know my AC been on, and oh my God, my bill has jumped to two and almost three hundred dollars. So when I'm I'm reading stuff about well, people just living high off the hog and they don't want to go back to work. I'm like, you know what? Some people didn't have a job where they were getting a lot of money. People who made minimum wage were not getting that much to say they're getting extra with the $600. Um, so I think the think right now that those people do not have anything extra coming in but what they had, it really just depends. And let's also look at the person who had a great job. And they were making, I know, I think it was American Airlines laid off 36,000 people at one time. If you are used to making uh, six figures and your mortgage is, let's say, 3000 a month, $600 times four weeks is $2,400. Now, that may have covered your mortgage, but that didn't cover your car notes, your, your all your other amenities. And I'm not talking about gym fees and, you know, all that other stuff that you can live without. I'm talking about necessities. When you live to a certain lifestyle and something like the COVID comes in, you just don't switch out. You can't downsize everything all at once. And and the trauma that that causes people to have to go through. So when I was reading this article, I was using my critical thinking skills and going, okay, now Here's the student loan repayment, which is definitely important to me because I did not receive unemployment benefits. I, um, my, my student loans are very, very, very important because I got a whole bunch of them. And when I looked, it said the CARES Act put federal student loans into administrative forbearance with an interest rate of zero through September 30th. I was like, yay. Now, some uh, of us who are wondering, how is this going to work? Some of us didn't make a lot of money in the first place, so we're in a unique category. But the moment you get back to work and start doing things and when the economy turns around, you know, okay, maybe people can start paying their student loans, but a lot of people, again, doctors, lawyers, even President Obama, when he was president, he still owed his student loans. People fail to realize to get a good education, most, most of us took out student loans. Pell Grant was just not enough. So 
People need the student loan. They need the unemployment benefits. They needed all these things. And to read this, it appeared that the president was like doing something immediately and only to find out that, oh, wait a minute, pump your brakes. People are going to still be without unemployment insurance because it's going to take time to get that worked on. People still going to have to deal with student loans uh, if they have not gotten the forbearance already. They have to deal with that. If you are behind on your rent, you can still be evicted. Because I know in Harris County, they are just past uh, not starting a um, rental assistance program. I think they did it once before. The money came came in and went so fast because people are so far behind. And again, the stress of trying to figure out how you're going to provide for your kids to keep a roof over your family's head, how to keep kids from dying, how to keep yourself from getting sick. I mean, it's a lot of stress on your everyday average person. So to compile that with unpaid mortgage, employment benefits being cut out, um, people saying, hey, but if you get we get rid of this extra $600 and you find a job, then we're going to give you more money and that's going to be like a... a, a a stimulus to get you getting back, you know, get us back on, on track. Well, the key to that is, or the caveat is, if no one is hiring right now in your field where you're qualified, what are you going to do with that? You cut my benefits off. I, most people want to go back to work. This thing about everybody sitting at home and not worried about going back to work, I think that's a misnomer. I don't think it's that many people now, I'm not saying that there are not people who are doing things wrong, who are getting over on the system. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying for the most part, I really believe that most people don't understand how the average person is living. When you think you can give a person $1,200 and that's going to change their whole entire life one time, that's, that's where you know people are out of touch. $1,200 is almost like $1.50 nowadays. I mean, again, I think most of us are grateful to have anything extra. But the, the humiliation that you feel when you lose your job, the power wars that are starting to go on in families over, you know, if the man has been the one that's going to be providing and suddenly he's not, and the woman is getting up and going to work and he's suddenly dealing with the kids and homework and all those things. There's so many dynamics that are changing in the home. A lot of people who who were worried about uh, not having the extra insurance to pay their health insurance. Most people don't realize when you are on the job, COBRA is about $600 or more. Oh, my God. I've been down that road. Uh, you know, and when people say, oh, but Obamacare, uh, uh, say what you want to call it, but it makes it where you are able to pay for your health insurance. $600 right now for the average person is too much money to go towards healthcare. But when you have pre-existing conditions and COVID is ramp running around rampant, what do you do? You have to do something. So I think it's very interesting. I, I, when I saw this article, I was like, okay, the president is intervening. He's, you know, he's using his executive power to make a change. I was impressed. And then I realized, like most people, Got to read the fine print. You got to get past the title. Got to get in here and read it. You got to talk to some others and then find out, uh-oh, well, yes, he is. 
He did sign the orders. He didn't lie to us about that, but he didn't give you all of the details. He didn't give you that stuff that they call in fine print. So I felt like this was one of those things where you say, um, as an as a writer, I appreciate Jim Wong. He was the one who wrote this article. He didn't deceive us. He did say, okay, he gave the facts, but then he told you. Uh, some of this, you know, he can't do. He didn't say he can't do, but he said it's going to take a little bit more. It's going to take some more details. And I think right now, too, we've made this whole thing about the unemployment insurance and all this stuff about Republicans and Democrats. You know, I think it comes a time when we have to put party stuff aside and look at Americans who are suffering right now. A lot of people are going through so many mental health disorders, anxiety, uh, depression, and when they get a few dollars, they're looking at maybe buying things that they couldn't buy before, but they feel like they're at a loss. And so right now, people are shopping more. People are gambling more. People are doing things that they normally didn't do because they're feeling isolation. So where some people may perceive that, ooh, Joe over there living high off the hog, they don't realize that maybe Joe is going through a deep depression. He is just trying to feel like a man because some men identify their ability to provide for their families via their manhood. Some women who are single mothers are dreading every day when they get up. What are they going to do? You know, people are saying, do we need to continue to give the EBT or the benefits for families? Yeah. Those who qualify for food stamps, they're probably going to still need them. And for those of us who did, did not qualify um, because of a few dollars, they need to look at ways to meet that need. Because if we're going to have the kids at home longer than we even anticipated, your grocery bills have ex been, oh my God, exasperated since March. My kids live in the refrigerator. They stand and they bask in the glow of the wind and the light. And they look every day, all day, for something else that they can choose to eat. And then you have to say, close the refrigerator. Go sit down because we're on a budget. I am, as one of those parents who are grateful for whoever came up with the EBT card for those uh, parents who had kids who received free and reduced lunch. I was able to uh to get that support for my groceries this summer. And man, it made a huge difference for me, a single mom of four kids, and I'm at home saying, oh my God, what are we going to do? Thank God for that. But guess what? That's almost over. So what are they going to do for the new year? This, this COVID thing is not a short-term situation. So we're going to need some long-term uh, views on how to take care of the things that families need. So the $400 executive, um, President Trump signs the executive order for $400 for unemployment insurance. That was great. It sounded great. And I hope that they figure out a plan that the states can, you know, make, do their part. And that people who need this extra $600 or, or people say extra who need this $600 to make it, I hope they get it. I hope that they do come up with a payroll tax holiday for employers and employees. And I hope that for sure the eviction moratorium is something that everybody works on to at the state level, the federal level. We we really need that in place because there's 
nothing more frightening than to be told you have to move. To be told that somebody's going to come and put your stuff out on the curb if you're not gone by a certain time. And when you have no money to get your stuff, pack it up, put it in storage, and do the thing, or family to, to go and live with or visit with or whatever, that's humiliating. It's, it's a weight that no one should ever have to experience. So I feel like at this point, you know, when you're reading and finding out all these things and we're getting all excited, make sure you read the fine print. Go do some more research because it's so much more to this Forbes article. But it's a credible source because it came from Forbes. And I, I felt like, okay, I posted it on my um, Facebook. And when I posted I immediately someone responded. Monica responded. And she's a lawyer. She's credible. And she gave me some more information. I was very glad that she came in and said something. Um, and then when she posted, many other people posted to my post and it's like, hey, let me give you all the other article because I read this too, thinking that we had relief, immediate relief. And then I had to realize that, no, I had to go back and read it again and, and, and get a better understanding that, you know, again, we talk about words, this whole uh, show has been on the power of our words. Everybody has to be careful because the way we use our words can be very, you know, they have connotative meaning, they have denotative meaning, meaning they have literal, and then they have figurative meanings. The way things are stated, the president, he lives in that uh, connotative meaning. He doesn't always tell you the dictionary meaning and the literal, literal meaning of what he's planning on doing. You have to listen to him very carefully. And this is not about him being uh, a Republican. All of them doing it. But he is our president currently, and right now he's the leader while we go through this crisis. So we have to listen to him and, of course, Governor Bush. Uh, excuse me, Governor Abbott. I know I'm in another Twilight Zone. Governor Greg Abbott. We have to listen to him very carefully, too, because he has to tell us about all the local things that they're doing for eviction, insurance, um, unemployment insurance. So I wanted to end the show today on that note because, you know, I want everyone who says they are a writer, you write. And a lot of people don't realize it, but you write a lot on your Facebook posts, your Twitter, your Instagram. This is the time now where you have the power to help others by sharing information, sharing other people's thoughts. And again, I like to share credible sources. I don't like to share stuff from anywhere, but I felt like that was an article that a lot of people may have already, you know, um, read, but I know today was all over the news that that $400 insurance, um, unemployment insurance, it was a big woo because people are thinking $400 is better than $0. Not realizing that right now you're still at $0 and people need money to help them survive. Well, now, Another thing I learned is that I have not been giving myself credit for my production work. So I'm going to end the show today with my um, ending saying, I produced this show. I am the writer, the editor, all of those things for the show. And I want to thank you guys. I hope you learned a lot from Lovey's uh, AJ Jones. I think she's phenomenal. I hope I shared something for all of you who are writers out there who are inspired to share your words and move the nation. I know I'm trying to use my words now to, to inform, to enlighten, to, to,
to help people feel better about the situation. That's what I'm using my voice and my platform for. All right. Well, thank you. I'll see you guys on our next time. And if you can do anything, remember, try to help someone else see things better and feel better about themselves. Conversation with Dr. Pope, radio show and podcast are hosted, written, researched, edited, and produced by Dr. Sheila Pope. This show and its contents are copyrighted.